Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so this is actually one of the first lectures that I'm doing um, via Zoom, so please bear with me um, if there are any issues, um, technical or otherwise. Um, as David said, and, and thank you for that uh, introduction, um, so uh, I am uh, a clinical instructor at the David Geffen School of Medicine, UCLA. Um, I did had my medical education at Louisiana State University um, and then did my residency at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan, where I had the opportunity to uh, work with a transgender center there, um, as well as in the uh, HIV uh, AIDS program as well. Um, so that's that's a very brief um, discussion of my background. Um, so, you know, I was asked to, to present today on um, the health and the well-being of transgendered individuals. And as David said, this is really a sort of niche topic. Um, and, and because it is, you know, such a small portion of the population of the United States, um, and, and quite frankly, the world, um, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of misinformation, lack of information, um, and and then even in um, you know learning about the topic and studying it, there's a lot of um, problems in, in being able to study it just because it's really hard to reach out to these individuals in any sort of size to be able to do um, you know good uh, clinical trials and other other research. So you know today's presentations, much of it will be based on evidence. Um, some of it is, is anecdotal, um, where there just isn't enough evidence. Um, so if anyone has questions about where any of that information comes from or where they can go for resources, you know, please feel free to, to bring that up, um, either in the chat box or I think at the end we will um, allow time for um, you know, questions uh, by, by voice as well, um, but we'll remain muted during the, the rest of the presentation. Um, so, um, I don't have any disclosures, um, and our objectives for today would be that by the end, I hope that you'll be able to use the, the correct language and pronouns to actually address transgender individuals. Um, I hope you will be able to understand and explain the social determinants of health that lead to poor mental and physical health outcomes in transgender individuals. I'd like you to be able to identify the systemic and structural violence that affects outcomes in this population, um, and then hopefully evaluate the, the needs of the members of the transgender population with regards to their mental health, their physical health, and in particular housing, uh, particularly in this day and age. So first, I want you to take a moment, uh, close your eyes or, or don't, um, but I really just want you to take a little bit of a journey with me, and I want you to imagine what it is like. So, um, you know, when I start my day, the first thing I do, I get up, I go to the bathroom, I splash water on my face, and I look in the mirror. And the person that I see is the person who I am and I know myself to be. And that is a very normal experience for, for myself and I, I would imagine for most people. But I want you to imagine what would it be like if when you splash water in your face and you look up in the mirror, if the person who's looking back at you is not who you know yourself to be. What would that feel like? How, how would you feel if you, if you didn't look the way that you felt inside, if you didn't appear to be who you felt that you were, and if there was a, a discordance between those two things? The point that I'd like you to consider is for a person who's transgender, that may be their experience every single day of their life until they are able to, if they choose, transition into the person that they believe themselves and understand themselves on a, an internal and fundamental level, that that's who they are. 
and they're able to realize those physical changes to express that. And so only after going through things that none of us would ever really have to do, medication regimens, potentially surgeries, um, you know, all sorts of interventions of that nature to look and appear and sound the way that they see themselves to be. That's a, a monumental undertaking and one that most of us take for granted because we never had to go through any of that. So I think it's really important to start out any presentation on this topic just with the basic terminology. What language, what nomenclature do we use? Um, that really allows us to, to speak to people in an informed and um, an inclusive manner. And uh, it also is where a lot of, I think, the um, the nervousness comes from many people, the anxiety that they're going to say something or do something wrong and, and to offend someone. And quite frankly, you probably will at some point say something wrong and someone may find it offensive and that's okay. It's really more about the, um, the openness and willingness to make those mistakes in the hope of gaining a better understanding and treating people uh, the way that they wish to be treated. So let's, let's just go through some of the basic terminology and then once we get through all of that, We'll, we'll allow some time for questions so that uh, everyone can, um, can you know, fully understand. So it's overwhelming. The terminology is incredibly overwhelming. There's so many different ter terms from gender affirming to trans masculine to trans woman to phalloplasty or top surgery, bottom surgery, transphobia. It's an overwhelming amount of, of nomenclature. I don't expect you to learn all of it today and remember it, um, but my hope is, is that you'll at least understand the basics and you'll be able to take that away. First, what is the difference between sex and gender? Because these two actually are different things. Gender identity is not necessarily the same as gender expression, is not necessarily the same as the sex that you were assigned at birth. And regardless of what all three of those things are, whether they are the same or different, they don't equal the sexual orientation necessarily. And sexual orientation, at least the way we might define it externally, could change as a person changes their gender expression um, or fully realizes their gender identity. So what do I mean by that? Well, I have a nice little tool that I like to use here. Um, this is from a website called It's Pronounced Metrosexual. Um, and this is a, a free and open resource to everyone. Um, so feel free to check out um, their site. Um, they have created the gender red person, um, which is both a fun play on words, but also a really great way, I think, of picturing uh, the different components. So I'm actually not gonna start at the top of the image. What I'm actually gonna start is, is sort of near the bottom. Um, because I think it makes the most sense to start with biological sex. So biological sex um, is going to be what's determined by genitalia. We're going to go more through that in a moment. Um, and that is sort of uh, from a medical or biological perspective, that's where everything starts. Now, gender identity is not necessarily determined by your biological sex. Okay, Gender identity is actually an internal sense, an internal understanding of who you are with regards to your gender. You can be man, you can be woman, uh, and you can be anywhere in between. What I really like about the way that this particular um, uh, spectrum, I guess, was, was set up is, is that it shows that there's a full range between man and woman um, and this gender queer category, which of course we will talk a little bit more in a moment. 
once once an individual understands their gender identity, and um, it's important to recognize that this may be fluid over time and it may change, um, but once they come to an understanding of their gender identity, there's a choice or um, is the choice is then is to express that gender um, or not express express that gender in, in some cases. Um, so gender expression is sort of this outside covering, it's the dotted line on the gender bred person, which is the outward expression um, of gender that we you know, put out to the world. That may or may not be the same as the gender identity of that individual. Uh, and it may also change over time as gender identity does. Um, it may or may not be the same as the biological sex of that individual uh, and people um, part of part of that gender expression may be to cover over or hide parts of that biological sex to bring it in line with their gender identity and that's when we get into talking about uh, about transgender finally I just want to you know make the note it's not really the purpose of this discussion or presentation today but sexual orientation is actually a separate entity in and of itself um, although it is easy to lump in with, with sex and with gender expression and identity, it is truly separate. Um, and um, it also is arranged from heterosexual to homosexual with bisexual in between and then various levels or degrees within there. Uh, and then even, even at times um, departures from that line altogether. All I, I could really do an entire presentation simply on sexual orientation alone, so I'm not going to delve deep into that, but it's important uh, because it often comes up in this whole discussion. Uh, so just important to realize that sexual orientation is, is separate from gender identity, from gender expression, and may be separate from biological sex as well. Uh, going further, this is just another way of looking at the gender-bred person. This is actually version four. Uh, the prior slide was version one. Um, I like both uh, representations for different reasons. So uh, going back a slide, what I like about this one is, is the, the way that uh, gender identity and gender expression are presented as being on a spectrum. Um, from man to woman, but I think at times it, the version four is a little bit better because the spectrum implies that you have uh, that you you as you move in the in the direction of say woman that you are moving away from man right however that isn't always the case um it it may be that there are qualities of both man and woman that are there um and they may both be strong or similar uh, one may be stronger than the other um, so it's important to recognize that when we look at womanness or manness on this scale um, that both can be present they're not mutually exclusive um, uh, other things are anatomical sex you know it's it's one or the other um, with with varying shades if there's certain um, issues in development of a fetus um, but generally speaking anatomical sex is you know bipolar um, it's either one or the other, whereas gender identity, gender expression, and sexual attraction uh, do sort of, they go on this spectrum scale, but they also, there's a balance between, uh, between the two different sides of that spectrum. So really now delving into the terminology. So first, let's start with sex. So sex is defined typically as sex assigned at birth, or SAB for shortness. Um, this, in a medical model, is, uh, is based biologically on the genitalia. Um, in, a, in a way, it is also based on the actual chromosomes. You probably remember from your high school science class, um, you know, XX are, you know, is a female um, set of sex chromosome, two Xs, and XY denotes a male sex. 
Um, why don't we use that for sex assigned at birth? Well, quite frankly, we usually don't need to. Um, you know, the genitalia are usually pretty, um, pretty obvious. There are times where people have mixed genitalia. That is usually a problem with, uh, with formation of the fetus during gestation. Uh, however, um, generally speaking, uh, it, it's easy to determine, um, and rarely would it ever conflict with the actual chromosomes that an individual has, um, with some notable ex exceptions for, um, for genetic or, or chromosomal diseases. Um, the reason we don't use chromosomes on a regular basis to define sex uh, um, or biological sex uh, is simply because it would be costly and timely. Um, what's the first thing that the, uh, the uh, birthing nurse or the midwife says uh, after congratulations is you have a insert boy or girl here um, and if we had to wait for a chromosomal analysis that discussion would take several days um, obviously no one wants to wait that long uh, and really we don't need to so we, we use it based on the genitalia that's present um, but again is also the chromosomes uh, moving on, we come to gender identity, which is, you know, it's in the brain, it's a thought process, and it is that internal sense of self, um, whether that is male or female or somewhere in between or somewhere divorced, actually, from that spectrum entirely. Um, it, it is this internal sense, and that, that again, may be in concordance or discordance with the, the sex assigned at birth. Gender expression, as I already mentioned, is the outward display of gender, which is um, which may or may not be a reflection of the gender identity uh, and there's a whole host of reasons that those two things may be discordant um, many of them involved in stigma or family dynamics um, predominantly social um, or other other concerns um, based on those you know for people who are concerned about their status at work but maybe not outside of the workplace their gender expression at work may differ from their gender expression when they are out on the weekends um, so again, this also is a, a spectrum, although some people stand outside of that spectrum as well, and we will talk about that. Um, but, but gender expression is this outward display of gender identity. Um, so when we get into the talk of cis and trans, what does that even mean? Well, we actually get those terms from chemistry. Um, the term trans refers to um, when you have two carbon atoms, which are the C's that you see here, um, and the two lines in the middle denote a double bond. Don't worry too much about that. But as you can see, what it does is it sets up this idea of you know, a top and a bottom side, or a left and a right side, or frankly, just this sidedness. And trans shows uh, in this the CL, which are chlorine atoms, um, those are trans because they are on opposite sides. So um, the thus meaning that you know a, a trans person, um, their gender identity is on one side and their gender expression, or sorry, their uh, sex assigned at birth is on the other side of that. Um, gender expression uh, is is not part of this, um, but they're they're those two things are on opposite sides, so they they're not in concordance. Cis, on the other hand, means that these things are on the same side. So in the nomenclature, uh, what that means is that the sex assigned at birth and the gender identity are on the same side or are both the same. For instance, um, you know, someone who has male genitalia and also identifies as a man. Okay, so gender identity, we just uh, already what we just kind of said. So cisgender is where gender identity equals sex assigned at birth. Transgender, meaning that gender identity is not equal to or is different from the sex assigned at birth. Um, and again, this can be a range. Um, 
you know, even, even the most manly man, so to speak, um, has some uh, feminine qualities. Uh, so, you know, they, they wouldn't necessarily be a zero on the womanness scale. Um, I might not say that to them, <laughs> but, um, but this is certainly, um, there's qualities in both that, um, that, are, that are potentially there. So transgender. So when we talk about a transgender woman, um, this means that they had a sex assigned at birth as male, um, but their gender identity is woman or female. Um, they can be referred to either as a trans woman or quite frankly, just a woman. Um, other terms that you may hear is male to female transsexual or M to F. Um, and then the adjective that we would use to describe those qualities uh, is trans feminine. Transgender men, on the other hand, have a sex assigned at birth as female, but their gender identity is male or man. Um, the terms that we would use to define them would be either trans man or just man. Um, but you may also heal female to male transsexual or F to M. The adjective used to describe um, transgender, excuse me, transgender men would be transmasculine. Then we get into what I was alluding to before is this concept of non-binary gender. So we live in a, in a world uh, and in a culture and a society where we have essentially decided that gender is either male or female um, and there's nothing really in between. But for many people, that is not their experience and that is not the identity that they um, choose or uh, not choose, but understand for themselves. Um, for these people, they either stand in a, a in the middle somewhere on the spectrum on the, the, the right hand side um, or they may stand outside of this entirely so their gender identity does not necessarily equal their sex assigned at birth um, but they don't fully identify with either gender there's this concept of gender fluidity uh, where their gender identity changes over time um, gender non-conforming is another term that is used just meaning that they uh, um, they may not conform to, um, to either of the, of the different genders, male or female. Um, this also plays a role in gender expression uh, where an individual may identify as a man and may have uh, a sex assigned at birth as a man, but their gender expression may be more feminine or may be more androgynous uh, because that is the way that they choose to express their gender. Um, and that is also a component of the gender non-conforming um, uh, term. Uh, gender diverse uh, also describes this population, um, and you may also hear the term gender queer, um, which generally speaks to someone in the middle of the spectrum who, you know, maybe vacillates between male and, and female qualities, uh, but doesn't ascribe a single gender to themselves. Um, in California, um, and this doesn't apply to other states, but in California, there is the legal gender X, um, which people can um, can have and can. Um, can actually is reportable in the medical record on their uh, their identity or their driver's license, um, and uh, it is actually required by law in California that um, the the gender the legal gender of the individual be um, appropriately documented, um, certainly within the medical record, but in any um, any record of of uh, legal status. A couple of other terms to be familiar with is transition and gender affirmation. So transition is the process of aligning one's gender identity um, and gender expression. Um, so a transgender man um, may not um, initially um, express their gender um, or their, their understood and, and internal gender. Um, but over time, the process of transition, this is where they bring those two things into alignment. 
gender affirmation um, is not an um, internal or not on the part of the, the individual themselves. It is what we, uh, as either medical professionals or individuals out in, in society, um, this is how we interact with these individuals in a way that supports their gender identity and their gender goals, either providing them support uh, or, or simply being there um, for them. Um, as an aside, as I mentioned before, sexual desire, sexual identity is not really part um, and parcel of, of transgender um, in and of itself, um, but it, it is important to talk about. So sexual desire is, uh, refers to the gender to whom a person is sexually or romantically attracted. Um, for, for some people, you know, this is uh, static over, over their entire lifetimes. For some people, it changes throughout their lifetime, um, and any and all of this is okay. Um, but it is in fact separate from the gender identity. Um, and then the people that they are attracted to is different than the orientation or the sexual identity that they ascribe for themselves. So an individual may be, um, may be a man, um, may identify as a man and may have sex with men, um, but they may not identify as homosexual. Um, there's a study, I didn't include it in this presentation, but there is a study actually that was done in New York City um, where they interviewed a cohort of, um, of men in New York City and um, there was actually a very large population of, um, of men who identified as straight um, and uh, who, um, who all were, you know, their, their primary sexual partners were all male. Um, and regardless of this, they, they still did not identify as homosexual or gay. Um, so it's important to understand that sexual desire and sex or sexual identity, just like uh, sex assigned at birth and gender identity or gender identity and gender expression, um, these two things are separate uh, and are not always in concordance. So in the end, I think the really important point to understand uh, and to, to be okay with, um, with all of this is remember, you're gonna make mistakes and that's okay. Um, what we do know, what the, you know, the research does show is, is that transgender individuals would much rather you stop and ask because you don't know than to make an assumption or, or use incorrect terminology that they don't ascribe to themselves. So if you don't know, just ask. It's perfectly fine. Um, no one's going to be offended by that. Um, they're more likely to be offended by using an appropriate uh, terminology or assuming something that may not in fact be true. All right, um, this isn't really part of terminology, but I wanna lump it in um, with this section before we go to questions, because I think it is, um, I think it's important um, that sort of for you to know, even though it may not be a large part of what you're doing um, in the community. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about transitioning, what that looks like and gender affirming therapies that we provide. Um, so the DSM um, has a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, this is defined as a marked incongruence between gender and assigned sex that last greater than six months. Um, the incongruence may be physical, it may be social and or emotional. Um, and then one of the, um, the diagnostic criteria is that it needs to cause clinically significant distress or dysphoria. Remember that the DSM is, is reductive, certainly in this aspect. Um, Gender nonconformity um, is gender expression that defies traditional norms. So when we look at that diagnosis or the diagnosis that the DSM provides, uh, it doesn't really uh, account for this the idea of gender nonconformity. It's really that you you know you have dysphoria caused by by believing that your um, your gender is that is different from your sex assigned at birth. Um, 
also gender dysphoria is a is discomfort a distress that's caused by discrepancy between these two things and not all individuals actually have discomfort or distress uh, because of this um, and furthermore some people you know may have periods of time where they do have dysphoria other periods of time where they don't have dysphoria um, you know we, we don't rely on this um, diagnosis I actually I, I, it's very rare that I would ever document it um, in, in the medical record uh, because it's not really particularly helpful. Um, in the end, what's more important to me is the gender identity of the individual uh, for whom I am taking care um, and what their individual goals are for themselves, the way they see themselves, uh, the way that they want to appear to the world, the way they want to express their self, themselves. So my treatment decisions are gonna be based on, on that rather than a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, certainly if there is dysphoria, it should be addressed. Um, we may be able to do that in primary care. We may be able to do that in transgender care. We may require the help of, uh, of a therapist, of a psychiatrist um, with this. Um, but in the end, um, the minority of the cases that I, I see um, is dysphoria a significant component. Um, you know, mostly it's, it's people just trying to make the outside look like they feel on the inside. All right, so gender affirming therapies, what is the purpose? The idea is to reduce gender incongruence, to improve gender dysphoria if it is present. Um, we want to use evidence-based interventions in this entire process, um, but there are a whole range of non-medical and non-surgical options uh, for trans women. This may be, um, uh, this may be certainly dressing in a certain way. It, there may be uh, prosthetics that can be used to simulate um, breasts or hips or other parts of the, the body that can be then you know, used to make more feminine in appearance. Um, there is um, binding of the chest for, um, for trans men. Um, and certainly, again, clothing provides a, a lot of help in this um, as well. When we look at the medical therapies that are available, um, it, it really is broken down by whether this is a trans man or a trans woman. Um, so for transgender women, um, the goal of medical therapy is the development of male sex, uh, secondary sexual characteristics. So we're looking to develop facial hair, we're looking to uh, improve muscle mass, uh, there's virilization of the voice, um, an increase in body hair as well, and there's a redistrib redistribution of body fat uh, to fit a more masculine um, body shape. Um, so more central fat and less um, fat in the periphery and certainly on the hips. Um, also a decrease in subcutaneous fat, um, which is, um, is a more, um, provides a more feminine appearance. Essentially the major, um, major and really only medical um, thing we use for the treatment um, of, of, for transgender men is testosterone. Um, there is no requirement. Uh, men also have estrogen, so there's no requirement that we suppress that. Um, testosterone actually um, in and of itself does this. Uh, so really the mainstay of therapy is testosterone. For transgender women, um, the goal is development of female cycle, secondary sex characteristics. Uh, these include certainly breast development, uh, fat redistribution, uh, essentially in the opposite way that we would expect for transgender men, um, and a reduction of hair and muscle. Um, there's also, um, you know, there's also voice, um, there's also Adam's apple, there's, you know, a number of other things. Uh, unfortunately, those things can't be done with medical therapy, those require surgical therapy. Um, 
and um, the mainstays of therapy for uh, for transgender women are are dual. Um, so there is the supplementation of estrogen uh, to bring it to a physiological level similar to that of a um, a female um, with an XY chromosome and a, and a female sex assigned at birth. Um, and then we also have to use anti-androgens to actually suppress testosterone, um, just as testosterone does a, a great job on its own to, to help us um, with our goals for transgender men. Um, it will counteract those goals for transgender women. Um, so we actually have to suppress either testosterone production or conversion or both. Then we move on to the surgical therapies. Um, for transgender men, this includes subcutaneous mastectomy or removal of the breast. Hmm, excuse me. This all also uh, may include either uh, metoidioplasty or phalloplasty and scrotoplasty. Um, both of these are used to create a neophallus uh, or, or penis. Um, it may or may not include hysterectomy and oophorectomy, which is removal of the um, of the uterus and the ovaries, respectively. Um, and then there's also voice modification. Um, this is predominantly done through, um, through speech therapy, but testosterone actually can um, lengthen the vo vocal cords and produce a more male-sounding voice. Um, again, these things all take time to work. The medical therapies take time to work, um, sometimes um, you know, at least a year, sometimes years. Um, to, to, to get to people where they would like to be. Um, surgery obviously is, is more quick, it's relatively definitive, um, but it's also, you can't really go backwards so well uh, with surgery. Um, so not everyone um, chooses to have these surgeries. Um, they may choose um, also any or, or, or some of these surgeries. You are not required to have any of them um, and you can choose to have one without another. So people make their decisions based on um, what is important to them and their gender identity and reducing any dysphoria that they may have. For transgender women, uh, the options are vaginoplasty, which is creation of a neo-vagina, uh, thyrochondroplasty, which is shaving down of the Adam's apple so that it is not as prominent, um, augmentation mammoplasty or breast augmentation that is more colloquially known, uh, orchiectomy, which is removal of the testes, um, facial hair removal um, and other hair removal, to be honest, um, usually through electrolysis or, or, or laser. Um, voice surgery or modification. Um, for for um, transgender women, um, the vocal cords are already elongated and estrogen therapy and testosterone suppression do not reverse this process. Uh, so they either require intensive speech therapy um, or potentially surgery on the larynx itself uh, to produce a more feminine voice. Um, and then finally, uh, facial feminization, um, which may um, involve multiple different uh, procedures, essentially shaving down bone um, and redistributing fat uh, to produce a more feminine facial appearance. And with that, I'd like to, to go and, and see where we are in the chat and, um, and see if we have any questions. Please feel free if you have any questions thus far to add those. One good question came up um, from, uh, from Rosa, and I really appreciate this question. And she asks, isn't the DSM diagnosis of gender dysphoria, isn't that helpful in giving a letter of support to gender affirming surgery? So I guess, you know, to add on to that, what, what is the role of having a, a gender dysphoria diagnosis? Mm -hmm. How important is it? Is it necessary? 
Sure. Um, so that's a really great point. Um, so, um, you know, the ACA um, does actually have a clause that requires insurance companies and Medicare to um, to provide um, coverage for uh, for some um, transgender therapy. Um, when it gets to surgery, things get uh, a little bit dicey. Um, generally speaking, for medications, um, we don't really have a lot of difficulties with approval of medications and getting those. Um, specifically, a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, I have seen plenty of patients who were able to get the therapies that they needed um, to, um, to affirm their gender without having that diagnosis. If it exists, uh, is it helpful in supporting it? Yes, um, it is. Um, truthfully, even, even with that diagnosis, uh, surgery, uh, getting surgery covered is, is difficult. Um, what I strongly suggest is, you know, if, if you do have any of these patients or clients um, who, who are interested in that, to refer them to a center, and I have some resources at the end of the presentation, um, to, to refer them to a, a center that, um, that, that does transgender care. Um, you know, what we often do are we work with our urologist, our plastic surgeons, our gynecologist, um, and we, we, find, um, we find creative ways to, um, to uh, we creative diagnoses essentially to, uh, to be able to get these things through insurance. It's never an easy process. It, it invariably requires prior authorizations and you know, streams of paperwork going back and forth. Um, but oftentimes um, we, can get, uh, we can get it covered, um, particularly if we're able to bring in another medical diagnosis to further support. Um, it does not require gender dysphoria to be, um, to be documented. Um, necessarily, but again, that, that is supportive. Great, and we uh, received two additional questions regarding hormone therapy. And, you know, A, is it, you know, once you're, what happens when you stop taking hormone therapy or if it gets interrupted? And are there health concerns for hormone therapy? Uh, it looks like Jenny has a client who is afraid of doing hormone therapy and uh, she has seen a lot of trans women friends die. So. Mm -hmm. You could address those. Sure. Um, it, it's hard for me to address um, friends dying because I, I need to understand the, the circumstances around that, but I can certainly talk about some of the risks of therapy. Um, so, what happens if you stop hormone therapy? Um, essentially, uh, it depends on what anatomy still remains. So, if, if you have, say, um, if you have, say, a trans transgender woman who is taking estrogen and anti um, and an anti-androgen, um, you know, they will over time they progress to a more female uh, appearance or feminine appearance. Um, and if you stop that therapy, certainly that progression will will be halted. Um, depending on how far things are, you know, there's a tendency for things to revert back. So uh, fat, you know, redistribution goes back towards a more masculine appearance. Um, uh, but, you know, bre breast development, um, that while there may be some, um, reabsorption of breast material, you know, I would expect that they're going to have more, um, more fat and breast tissue in that location, um, than they would have prior to therapy. Um, you know, depending upon the level of dysphoria that that may or may not create for that individual, um, then, you know, that may then be an indication for, for surgery to remove that excess tissue. Um, 
it, it really it kind of just depends on on what the scope is and and how how far along in the process, how long they've been on the hormones, uh, all of that. The other thing that I think is really important to to consider is is that um, you know these are hormones and starting someone on or stopping someone from or if they fall out of care and on a, are unable to get their medication, um, you know it's like going through puberty again in many ways. Um, it's not the best analogy, but I think it works. So if you think back to your adolescent years, you know when when the hormones start um, start being produced and and changing, th those changes cause lots of, of things. So, you know, people who discontinue their hormone therapy may develop acne that they didn't have before. Uh, they may have mood swings. Um, you know, any of those, any of those things that hormones act on, um, it, many of the same things you again might expect from, from, um, from puberty, you could potentially see anytime you're, you're starting or stopping hormones, uh, whether it's under medical supervision or, or for some reason you're, you're no longer able to get them. Uh, in terms of risks and benefits, um, yes, um, you know there there can be uh, risks, or there there definitely are risks associated with hormone therapy. Uh, estrogen, um, in particular, uh, increases um, the likelihood of uh, of blood clots. So, particularly if someone is already predisposed to um, to clotting disorders such as uh, VTE or venous thromboembolism, uh, DVT, which is a deep vein thrombosis usually in the leg, or PE is the dreaded complication, pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lung. The likelihood of all of these things is increased based uh, versus where they would have been at baseline. However, um, the goal of this therapy is to get to physiologic levels. Um, so the goal is not to give a huge, giant, whopping dose of estrogen to you know, all of a sudden uh, make this person's gender expression uh, and, and gender identity, um, you know, the same overnight. These things, again, take time. They take years. If you think about, um, if you think about a, a, a biological female growing up, you know, she hits puberty and slowly develops breast over several years, and we expect the same thing. Um, and when we're, when we're, you know, using medically, medical affirming therapy, um, the goal is to bring them to, to what the normal level would be for a, a woman um, who is in her adult years. Um, and if we are able to get to, to that level, um, the hope is that um, there, we aren't really increasing the risk beyond the normal physiologic uh, level for a biological female. Um, in terms of testosterone, the risks are primarily uh, heart disease, stroke, and elevated uh, blood pressure or hypertension. Um, these are all things that testosterone does in men, um, which is also one of the reasons, you know, if you look statistically, men are more likely than women to have a heart attack, um, to have, you know, a stroke, these types of things. Um, and again, just the same as we would do with estrogen therapy, the goal of testosterone therapy is to get to a physiologic level. We're not trying to get to a super physiologic place. Um, my concern with these patients is that oftentimes um, the progression um, and development is not always the speed at which they would like to see it. So it's always a constant conversation um, about not taking higher than prescribed levels of their medications and making sure that they follow up with the necessary monitoring so that we make it as safe as, as, as humanly possible. Um, but if we're able to stay at physiologic levels, the risk should be similar to uh, to someone who is biologically that gender. 
Um, and I see one other um, other question. Um, so the question is, um, so Eve, Eve asked, um, when I was teaching high school, one of my students went from appearing male to appearing female between ninth and 10th grade. And I wondered what percentage of people who change their outside appearance go through gender reassignment treatment and surgery. Um, you know, I don't know that percentage off the top of my head. Um, and, and, you know, we can certainly um, find that and, and get that information to you. Um, I, I, overall, uh, fewer people go through surgery than hormonal therapy. Uh, hormonal therapy is, is just much more, much easier to access. Um, the medications are, are not that expensive. Um, and all it really requires is, is regular um, visits to, to uh, the doctor for monitoring and for prescriptions. Um, you know, gender affirming surgeries are, you know, it's, it's a surgery and it's a, a physically altering surgery. So it's, it's not as none of these are lightly made decisions, but it's, it's an even less lightly made decision. It, it's a much more serious one. Um, and surgeries have their own intended risks. Um, so I, I, that I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure about. Um, it would be, it, it's interesting to me that you would have a student um, make such a quick transition. Um, and certainly at that age, um, it is pretty rare um, to find a surgeon who would be willing to provide any surgical treatment um, prior to, um, to a patient um, coming of, of age um, and, and, and adulthood. Um, in general, um, I didn't intend to talk about this, but um, so for, for, um, for children and adolescents um, whose gender identity does not meet their sex assigned at birth and who, who are trans, um, there are medical therapies where we can actually arrest puberty um, and that is the preferred, um, the preferred method for people of that age. Um, the reason we, we would uh, arrest puberty is because that allows us to um, stop those changes. So as I, as I mentioned, for trans women, you know, once the larynx has grown, once the facial structure has changed, we can't reverse that without surgery. Um, so for children, um, it, uh, it is preferred to just sort of put that on hold, give them time to fully realize themselves. Um, and then when they're adults, then apply the, the appropriate therapy or simply remove that therapy um, based on, on, on what their gender identity is at that time. Um, let's see, it was a gradual transition. Okay, so, um, so Eva, it, it, uh, it, may have been, um, it may have been a medical therapy rather than a surgical one. I, I don't know for this person um, particularly, um, but that would be my guess. Um, and then also, again, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of non-surgical, non-medical treatments, um, whether it's, it's wrapping or, um, or you know, prosthetics, different things that, that can be used to give the appearance without actually having the medical or the surgical therapies. Um, and I hope, I hope that answered any, everyone's questions. If there are any additional questions, um, you know, we, will, we will have additional time for those, um, but I do wanna move on um, so we don't run out of time. Um, so let's talk a bit about the social determinants of health and the health disparities for transgender individuals. So I sort of already talked about this in the beginner, beginning, but it's really important to remember that all of the data that I'm going to present is limited. Um, designing studies to obtain good objective data about this population is difficult. There's a lot of stigma uh, for transgender people, and they then develop a lot of fear of identification and or the repercussions if they uh, participate in any studies. 
Um, studies suffer from small sample sizes, or N, uh, as you may all be familiar with now that everyone has heard about it because of, of Dr. Fauci and COVID. Um, convenience sampling, um, which is um, essentially where you, you go to a location uh, where you know you're going to find these people um, and then sample from that group. Um, that lacks external validity, uh, which, which um, you know, throws up a lot of limitations and, and concerns about the data that we do get. Um, and then there's the concept of snowball and respondent-driven sampling, um, with respondent-driven only being somewhat better than snowballing. Uh, snowball sampling is, is when you have an individual who agrees to join the study and you ask them to bring their friends along with them. Um, so, you know, we're, we're sampling from a specific population rather than the population at large. It's not appropriately randomized um, and that degrades the quality of data. Respondent-driven sampling is somewhat better in that uh, the respondents are limited in the number of people that they can recruit, um, which helps to diversify, but again is also limited. Um, finally, there are funding limitations simply because uh, there are, you know, lots of other other studies that are waiting to be done and uh, um, address larger parts of the population, essentially. The, the transgender population is such a small segment of the population, it's really hard to find anyone who's willing to fund any significant research. Uh, just going back to remember what the social determinants of health are, um, these are the things in the in our surrounding lives that affect our health. Um, these, these things include our environment in which we live and we grow, our education, our healthcare and healthcare access, um, our economic uh, stability and our stability with regards to food, um, and then the social and community context in which we find ourselves. So we live in a very gendered world. Um, particularly in this country, but I would, I would venture to say throughout the entire world, um, we, we, um, we're all exposed to systemic genderism. Um, you know, what's the first thing that happens when, when you or someone you know gets pregnant? Oh, is it a boy or is it a girl? That's the question everyone wants to know. There's an entire industry revolving around gender reveal parties. Um, you know, this, this is the world we live in. Um, only recently are we changing Per, uh, maternal or paternal leave and starting to call it parental leave. Um, people, are, you know, we have this, this ingrained idea in us of I'm having a big strong boy or a beautiful baby girl that's already making assumptions about what it means to be a boy or what it means to be a girl. Um, and that's before the baby's even born. Um, and then there's this concept of gender inequality. I'm sure you were familiar with it. These are you know, gender inequality in the workplace or in pay. We know that women get paid less than men. Um, they're less likely to be hired or to maintain a full-time job um, because of this. They're just our inequalities. This is the world that we live in. And when we're working with transgender patients, this is even further magnified. Our language, our language is gendered. Uh, and English is better than some. Um, what I would what I would hope um, that you you do um, with this is just recognize when you are using gendered language. Um, one of my personal goals for myself is to to use non-gendered language when I care for my patients, regardless of whether they are cis or transgendered. Um, so you know, normally we refer to someone's wife or to their husband. We can use the word spouse. It is equally valid and does not assume a gender. Um, the words girlfriend or boyfriend as opposed to significant other or partner, um, sister or brother as opposed to sibling, man or woman as opposed to person or persons, girl or boy as opposed to child. 
going further, she, he, and this is the part that really kills me. We don't have a good non-gendered first person. Doesn't exist. She, he, or it. It in and of itself is dehumanizing. It implies that this is a thing, not a person. Uh, my water bottle is an it. I am never an it. You are never an it. A person is never an it. Um, and if, if people use that term, um, it is almost entirely uh, derogatory. Um, instead, we use the term they, which at least implies human, human quality, um, but is imperfect because really this is a, th a third person plural. Um, so it, 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 is, it doesn't really apply to an individual, uh, but it is the preferred terminology um, that many people choose to use for themselves. Then, if you think English is bad, consider the Romance languages. So in French, la table is the table. Um, la is feminine. I don't know why a table is feminine, but apparently it is in France. Le may, or, or the corn, is masculine. Une chienne is a female dog. At least that one we can, you know, there's a difference. It's une chienne if it's a female dog, un chien if it's male. Spanish has the same problem. All of the Romance languages do. La mesa is, is also um, feminine. El mes is, is uh, masculine. And una pera, although you also have the un pero. Um, so again, you know, this is even worse in the Romance languages. It's something to be aware of. Um, we have to work within the bounds of the languages that we have. Um, we're, not, we're not trying to, to create a new one, um, but just consider that, that this is the world um, that, we, that we live in um, and gender is a huge, huge part of it. So when we start looking at the discrepancies um, in transgendered individuals, um, the best study really to date um, is the uh, National Center for Transgender Equality put together um, a report in 2015, which was the US Transgender Survey. Um, this is a follow-up on a prior study that was done in 2008 and 2009, the National Transgender Discrimination Survey. Um, it was, uh, this was funded by the National Center for Transgender Equality. And there were nearly 28,000 respondents in throughout the entire United States, the District of Columbia, American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, as well as overseas military bases. Um, the uh, survey was anonymous, so it did not require anyone to identify themselves, um, thereby hoping to get away from some of the issues with fear. Um, these, uh, this again is, is one of our, our better studies and the link if you want to look at it for yourself is on the bottom of the slide, which we will share later so that you will be able to, um, to go and look at any of these, um, these resources. So with regards to mistreatment and violence, um, uh, within the prior year of the survey, um, immediate family, family violence in adolescence um, was about 10% of all of those who were out to their family. Um, and of uh, everyone who was out, uh, sorry, of everyone who was uh, studied, 8% um, of those were actually kicked out of their own homes by their family. Um, violence at school, also in adolescence, 54% uh, reported verbal harassment, 24% uh, reported actually being physically attacked uh, at school, 13% were sexually assaulted, and 17% left school because of one or all of these. When we look at adults, 46% had been verbally harassed in the prior year, 9% had been physically attacked, and 10% were sexually assaulted. And the level of uh, sexual assault within the transgender population surveyed throughout their lifetime was 47%. You may imagine being part of a population and having a 50-50 chance at having been sexually assaulted in your lifetime simply because of your transgendered status. That's unfathomable. 
With regards to economic hardship and instability, 29% of transgendered individuals were impoverished versus 12%, which was the national average at the time. Unemployment, um, these were pre-COVID times, so the national rate of 5% obviously no longer applies, um, but the level of unemployment in the transgender population in 2015 was approximately 15%. Home ownership, only 16% in this population versus 63% in the general population in the United States. Um, and homelessness in the prior year was at a, about 30% in this population. I apologize, I don't have good data uh, for the, the level of homelessness um, in that year um, within the general population. Um, so looking at systemic barriers and discrimination in these individuals, there are only 22 states as of 2018 who have passed some sort of legislation that prevents discrimination based on gender identity. That may be at work, that may be in healthcare settings, that may be uh, in securing housing. Um, only 22 states, I'm happy to say that California is one of them, um, have that legislation. Um, and, you know, I hope that, that in the near future, the other states will come on board with this, um, but this is where we are now. Um, of uh, transgendered individuals, 25% had issues with health insurance coverage. Um, this, this ran the gamut, anything from having issues with um, using their health insurance to cover the therapies that they needed, be they medical or surgical, um, but it also includes lack of access to insurance as well. Um, there's significant issues with regard to preventative care. Um, insurers use the reported gender or the sex assigned at birth to make decisions upon which services for preventative care services should be covered for an individual. So generally speaking, if I order a pap smear on a man, that, that will not be covered because a pap smear is not indicated in a man. Um, so as individuals make their legal status commensurate with their um, their gender identity and their gender expression, it may cause issues in preventative care. Furthermore, there's much, much misinformation on what preventative services individuals uh, who are transgender actually need. Um, and it's a really difficult topic because it depends on what anatomy is present. Um, if I was lecturing to the medical students right now, I would tell them anatomy is king um, when it comes to all of our medical interventions. Um, but obviously when it gets to an insurance level, it, it causes problems as well. Coverage for medication and for procedures is limited. Um, again, as I mentioned, the ACA did make it mandatory to provide transition-related therapies. However, there was still a large amount of denial of coverage. Um, this included 55% uh, who were denied coverage for transition-related surgeries and 25% who were denied coverage for gender-affirming medical therapies. Uh, that said, um, oftentimes with the, with the right prior authorizations, with the right tenacity and the right paperwork, we're able to push past these obstacles, but they do, are, they do still exist and they are very real. Furthermore, even if you don't have problems with any of the above, there are not enough providers out there who are competent in this realm. It is not significantly taught in medical schools throughout this country. Um, it is not um, taught in residency programs throughout the country, and many providers simply are not comfortable. For those transgender patients in, here in Los Angeles, or you know, maybe San Francisco, other large cities, either in California or in the US, you know, there are centers where people can go for this. But if you live in small rural communities, whether it's in California or say the Southeastern United States, you may have to drive hours to see a provider who is competent in providing this type of care.
With regards to healthcare access, again, a major, a major hurdle for many people. Um, not only do, you know, once you get past the insurance, what happens when you walk through the door? So 28% of people had, were harassed or experienced violence in a healthcare setting. 2% were victims of violence in a doctor's office. I don't understand how that's even possible. 50% uh, had to teach their doctor about their own care. This goes back to the lack of competent providers. 19% had a refusal of care due to their transgender status. Um, this may have been in a doctor's office. It may have been in an emergency room. 32% um, refusal rate for, uh, for Latinx members of the community. Um, as, as we go forward, you will see that the um, uh, transgender minorities uh, suffer even more greatly than their white counterparts, which is in keeping with sort of the general statistics in this country, um, but becomes even more acute in this population. Uh, this is a quote that was actually reported as part of the survey. Uh, and the quote was, I have been refused emergency room treatment even when delivered to the hospital by ambulance with numerous broken bones and wounds. How in this world I, is that possible? I don't know, um, but it is, it is being reported and it does happen. So I want to talk a little bit about minority stress theory. Um, this was proposed in 2003 by Ellen Meyer. Um, he was specifically looking at, um, at, at lesbian and gay um, patients more than transgendered, um, but I think that it applies regardless. Um, so minority stress theory, and forgive me if I bring up my notes, it is a little bit complicated and I get lost sometimes. Um, so, you know, let's take the word stress. Um, I think we all understand what minority means. Um, stress in this context uh, applies or, or uh, is defined as, uh, you know, external events or conditions um, that tax individuals and may exceed their capacity for endurance. Um, and then the, the stress is often caused by alienation from social structures, from social norms or institutions. Um, and in the, the, um, in the framework of minority stress theory, this specifically results uh, as, as a result of their minority status. So in, in this case, uh, we're considering transgendered individuals. Um, if you look sort of at the middle, box D uh, and box F, these, these refer to the distal and the proximal sources of stress. Um, so the idea is working from outside in that the distal stressors, um, those are objective or external events or conditions that, that cause stress as a, as a result of minority status. This may be prejudice, such as, as you know, blatant discrimination, this may be violence, this may be sexual assault, any, any of those sorts of things. The proximal stressors, these are more, um, these are more subjective. These are the internal processes. Um, it refers to an individual's perception or their self-appraisal or self-identity and how, um, how this can cause stress. These include things such as the needing to, um, or the feel for the need to conceal themselves uh, from the outside world or to present in a certain way. Um, this may be expectations that they will be rejected regardless of the truth of that. Um, and this can also result in an internalized transphobia, um, where some of these, um, these thoughts or, or um, negative thoughts towards transgendered individuals um, are actually internalized and, and, and there's a degree of self-hate. Um, um, it is important to note if you look at box, box H, you know, there is this sense of minority identity and if um, people are able to find other members uh, of their same community there is um, there is coping and there is social support that they can get through this um, and these two things then balance um, the the stressors both distal and proximal versus this the coping and the support um, and they can result 
in both negative um, and, and also sometimes uh, positive mental health outcomes. Um, those can then furthermore um, cycle down. Um, and as I'm sure many of you have experienced, um, you know, mental health can very easily um, and, and very strongly um, impact physical health as well. Um, we, it's also important to note there are intersections of minority status. This is what I was talking about before. Um, so we look at, at race in this population, you know, difficulties with access to care. Um, only 21% of transgendered individuals who are white had issues with access. Um, but for minorities, uh, particularly uh, Latin and, um, and Black, 32% um, uh, face difficulty with access. Um, when we look at insurance, uh, it's even more stark the difference. 25% of white uh, transgendered patients um, were uninsured versus 47% in racial and ethnic minorities. Um, there's not good data, unfortunately, for transgendered individuals when it comes to immigration status or to economic status. The data simply doesn't exist at this point in time. I hope that at some point in the future it will, um, but right now um, it does not. Um, that said, I think it is, um, I think it's probably safe to assume um, that immigration status and economic status uh, play into this. Um, it's obvious to me, my patients who have more economic means are more able to access uh, surgical therapies um, at the very least, um, and then often are more likely to have insurance or more likely to be able to uh, obtain care and be able to pay for the care that, that they deserve. Minority stress does lead to mental and physical health disparities. Um, it is caused and, and it can create stigma. Um, we already talked about the internalized transphobia. There's also the external transphobia, um, social problems and emotional dysregulation. And it's important to remember that minority stress is socially induced. The sequela, elevated risks of major depression, of anxiety, of PTSD, of substance use disorder, disordered eating, suicidality, um, and, and I could go on um, further down this list. Uh, when we come to physical, there's you know, HIV um, and, and other things as well. There's a greater likelihood of sex work. There's a laundry list really of things. So when we look at mental health specifically in transgendered patients, um, so in transgendered individuals uh, versus the general population, 63% of transgendered individuals have suffered from depression at some point in their lifetime versus 7.1% uh, of the general population. When we look at anxiety, um, this data is in youth. Uh, for generalized anxiety disorder, there were about 48% um, who had, um, had issues with anxiety versus 18% in the general population. Psychological distress, 39% in transgendered individuals versus 5% in the general population. And when we look at suicidality, it's nearly 10 times greater in transgendered individuals with lifetime suicidality, 40% versus 4.6% in the general population. When we look at physical health risks in transgendered persons, there's elevated risks of substance use, 36%. Smoking also elevated 30% versus 20.6% in the general population. And the rate of HIV in transgendered individuals is four times the national average of 0.6%. It is 2.64% of people in this population. And of course, that does not include people who have not been tested, are not obtaining medical care, and may be going undiagnosed. Furthermore, there's the risk of postponing care. So 49 to 55% of transgendered individuals postponed medical care uh, for any reason. 
49%, uh, the 49% was uh, trans uh, women and the 55% was trans men. 50% of transgender individuals postpone normal, regular preventative services uh, and 48% postpone sick care. That's a lot. There's a lot of pieces, parts to that. Do we have any questions? I'd like to give it a few minutes before we move into a, a different or the next section. Yeah, thank you, Jenny, for that comment. I'm the social worker here, so yeah, I certainly appreciate that. But also, I really appreciate just the recognition of how all the different adversities that, um, that trans people experience on top of you know, particularly with our FSP population where they're experiencing possibly homelessness or serious mental illness, uh, psychosis, uh, substance use. So all of those things which are already really difficult, then there's this, um, you know, then adding that additional layer can just make things so challenging for the people we serve. So again, really appreciate just the, the information on, um, on the adversities that they experience. Um, and actually, you, you bring up psychosis, um, you know, one, one thing that I would consider in any transgender patients or clients that you're working with um, who do present with psychosis, um, you know, it may be just your regular psychosis, there may be an, you know, a, a, a mental health disorder there. One thing to consider in those individuals, though, is, um, is their hormonal therapy, going back to sort of what we were talking before, um, major changes to hormone therapy or uh, patients will often intentionally, as I sort of spoke to before, intentionally take larger than prescribed doses of their hormones. Um, and that actually can induce psychosis, um, you know, particularly large amounts of testosterone and super, super physiologic, super therapeutic levels can certainly cause aggression uh, and can cause psychosis. Um, so that's always something to consider um, in a patient who maybe doesn't have that, that history, but is all of a sudden presenting with it. It's, it's a question I would consider asking. Not that I'm asking you to manage their medicine, but. <laughs> well, that's really helpful. If anyone has any experiences with clients that they've worked with, like, or maybe they've seen an example of, you know, perhaps uh, the hormone therapy that they're taking actually producing some symptoms that have been um, misdiagnosed or, or misidentified, that would be really helpful to share. So anyways. Now that we've talked a lot about all the disparities, um, how do we actually combat this um, in, in, in healthcare? So um, first I wanna define what systemic violence is. I'm, I'm sure that you're all familiar, but just to, to rehash this, um, systemic violence is institutional practices or procedures that negatively impact groups uh, or individuals physically, psychologically, culturally, economically, and or spiritually. So where do we go wrong in the healthcare system? Well, there's lots of different points of tension. Um, you know, the, the way I, I like to, um, to approach it is, what are all the steps that it can, can go wrong from the moment you set foot in the door uh, of my office till the moment that you check out? Um, so the first that, that comes to mind is misidentification. So you enter the office, you walk through the waiting room, um, and you go to the front desk, and someone is there to check you in. If you, um, you know, if that person looks at the record and it says that you are male, they are going to look up and say, hello, Mr. Punicky, um, uh, even though I may clearly present uh, as a female. 
um, or, uh, or maybe I don't present as a female, but that is still my preferred gender um, and, uh, and how I would like to be referred. So this is a, a point of tension um, you know, for individuals um, and who, who may be offended um, and or very much turned off by this. Um, and I'm gonna speak a little bit about ways that we can mitigate this. Um, there's also this concept of gendered experiences. Um, and you know, I, I cite gynecology and neurology because in medicine, at least those are the most common places for this to happen. Um, but then I also have the LGBT center in italics um, and I'm, I'm going to explain that. So when I refer to a gendered experience, um, you know, for anyone who's been to a gynecology office, um, you know, everything in that office is designed or around women and as it as it should be um, it is a place generally for women um, and for them to receive care um, that that revolves around um, around their um, their womanness so to speak um, this may include signage this includes you know what magazines are there um, what color are the walls what color is the the furniture in the waiting room um, you know those those sorts of thing when you go in the exam room what what poster what anatomy is on that poster um, the same holds, holds true for urology office um, you know, urology offices are predominantly male um, there are of course um, female complaints that are seen in a urology a urologist office but they tend to cater a bit more towards male patients um, so you if you are a transgender man who still has a, a, a vagina and a uterus and still needs to go for their pap smear, it may be horribly daunting um, and, and you may feel incredibly out of place in a gynecologist office, even though that's the place that you need to go to receive the care that you need. Um, same may be true in a urologist office. And then the reason I put the LGBT centers there is because this can actually be a really hard place for certain members of the transgender community. You know, we tend to lump together sexual orientation and transgender, which is why I talked about it in the beginning, but these really are two completely separate issues. Most gay men are not transgendered women and most lesbians are not transgendered men, um, regardless of the way that they act or the way that they, they dress or anything like that. And LGBT centers typically um, service predominantly lesbian and gay and to a, a lower degree bisexual patients. And while they certainly are competent to care for transgendered individuals, that is just a smaller segment of the population. Um, so signage in these centers is typically going to be for lesbian or gay patients um, and may not be geared towards transgendered patients. Um, so for some individuals that can be um, really jarring and can make them very uncomfortable because they do not, um, they are not lesbian or gay themselves, they're transgendered um, and, and they don't identify with that. And so those are not always safe spaces for them um, and, and the way that they, um, the way that they, they present and the way that they identify. Uh, privacy, of course, is a, is a concern. This is a concern for everyone, um, but because of the stigma, because of the novelty on some level of, of transgendered individuals, um, they are, are rightfully concerned about their privacy um, and also the concern that should anything um, leave the bounds of that office, um, it may impact their, their job, their economic status, um, their home life, their family experience. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of fear that revolves around privacy. Um, it's on all of us as healthcare professionals to make sure that we, we do everything we can to maintain everyone's privacy, um, regardless, uh, regardless of who they are and how they identify. Um, there is a, a very justified, I think, fear of new providers. I think we all have a little bit of a fear the first time we meet a new doctor. 
a new social worker, a new psychiatrist, a new uh, physical therapist. There's a certain amount of fear, um, absolutely. But when you're transgender, that fear is is even even more compounded. Uh, you know, it, it's not just am I going to get along with this person? Am I going to like them and think that they're going to take care of me? Um, it's the fear of will they understand at all what I'm going through? Will they treat me with respect? Um, will they um, will they talk down at me? Will they uh, make light of my concerns of my identity? Um, you know, these are these are very real fears, and it again goes to speak to that lack of competence among among many um, providers. Um, also, the fear of judgment or objectification, um, and this is a real quote. Um, has anyone ever wanted anyone to say to them while they were in the doctor's office, "You should be on Oprah"? Right? There may be a few individuals who you know fancy themselves to be actors or actresses or or one of the Instagram stars who absolutely would love that. Um, but, you know, I don't think that most people want anyone to think that they should be on Oprah simply because of who they are um, on such a basic level as their gender identity. Um, so, so things like that can, um, while, while they sound, um, well, they sound positive on the, on the surface to the person hearing that um, directed at them, uh, that can be um, incredibly distressing. These are some quotes, um, again, from the, the, um, the, the US Transgendered Survey. Um, the first one, um, I have been harassed and physically assaulted on the street. One time I didn't go to the hospital until I went home, changed out of feminine clothes, and then went to the emergency room in male mode. I had a broken collarbone as a result of that attack. Can you imagine? having to, or even thinking about going home and changing your clothes before going and having a broken collarbone taken care of? That does, doesn't even cross my mind. Um, but for these individuals, it may. Um, our second quote, I rarely tell doctors of my gender identity. It just seems so hard to explain what gender queer means in a short doctor's appointment. I'm also reluctant to take the risk of discrimination. I need to be healthy more than I need to be out to my doctors. I hate making this compromise, but I'm not quite that brave yet. And I wish I could talk to that, that person because, you know, not all doctors are there. You know, there are a population of us who, who are educated in this and know how to take care of these patients and, um, and, and to take care of their health and, and you know, uh, affirm them and, and their identity. Um, but these are very real, real fears. And I think it really speaks to the underlying level of distress for many of these individuals. This is something that we have um, you know, in our medical record. So if you look at this, this is a Ronald test. Um, this is a test patient, but you can see that Ronald with a relatively male sounding name um, is uh, listed as female. Um, and then um, the pronouns is he, him, and his. So there's something that's not working here. Um, I don't know um, if any of you are familiar with the SOGI form. Um, but the SOGI form, or Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity form, is a series of questions um, that help patients to identify themselves. Um, and if you have a medical record, we are fortunate at UCLA to have one that actually um, presents this information uh, preferentially above whatever the um, whatever the, the sex at birth information uh, is there. Um, so what is your preferred name? Um, that couldn't get to come up, but would come up in quotes, um, as opposed to the name that is listed there. Um, you're, these people can, um, can state their sexual orientation, which is then um, available there. 
their gender identity, what pronouns they wish to use, and what their sex assigned at birth was on the original birth certificate. Um, in a doctor's office, we certainly do need to know what the sex assigned at birth was because it helps us to make the preventative and other care decisions that we need to based on the anatomy. Um, but in our system, at least, we're fortunate that that, pop that populates all of these fields so that I don't have to think twice. You know, Ronald Test is male and he uses the pronouns he, him, and his. Um, and then I can look and see what, that the sex assigned at birth was female. So I remember to do those things. Um, but for me, for my MAs, for my front desk staff, it's right there. We have all the information that we need to, to use the right pronouns, the right language um, to take care of Ronald. I don't know what systems you all use, um, if any, um, but you know, if you have an opportunity to, to, to use this form or to incorporate this into your electronic medical record or, or whatever other record system you use, um, it is a great tool. That way um, it's communicated right up front to everyone um, how to best um, speak to this person and use their preferred terminology. Um, so how do I talk to these individuals? Well, I'm gonna go back. Remember, if you don't know, ask. So I, I don't assume just because, you know, I have a patient who comes in and, and she appears to, to be female um, and is presenting that way. I still ask, what pronouns do you prefer to use? What name do you want me to call you? Um, and, and that's because it, you know, it, it isn't always what I expect. You know, I have, I have trans, trans female or trans feminine, let me say, trans feminine patients um, who actually prefer the pronouns they and their. Um, and don't fully ascribe um, to the to you know she her pronouns um, and don't fully see themselves as women, um, but they do prefer a more feminine um, outward appearance. Um, so ask uh, you do it, you know it, assuming uh, is just going to get you into trouble. Ask. Um, it's important to treat the entire person, not just the gender. Um, so just because some you know, transgendered individual is coming to you does not necessarily mean that they are coming to you for anything that has anything to do with their gender identity. They may be coming to you because, in my case, because they have high blood pressure. In your case, because they need a place to sleep. Um, and, and that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with their gender. Um, so don't assume that that's why that they're there use the right name, the right identifier, the right pronoun. How do we find that? We ask. Use the patient or the client's own language. Listen to them while they speak and not just to what they're saying, but also the content of what they're saying. You know, there's a lot of um, you know, we, we always talk about body language and, you know, the, the nonverbal communication. Um, and I think, you know, we all do a, a good job of, of paying attention to that, but pay attention to the words that they're using, the way that they're speaking, um, you know, tells you, tells you something about how they see themselves. And it also, you know, it's, it's the language that they like to use to refer to themselves. So if you reflect that, um, it, it would make them more comfortable. Recognize that you are going to make mistakes. I still do. My patients that I've, you know, I've known for some time, I still make mistakes sometimes. We all do it and it's okay. Apologize respectfully and quickly and briefly. Don't belabor the point, you know, don't apologize over and over and over again. It's awkward for you. It's awkward for your patient or your client. Um, so apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. I used the wrong pronoun. Move on. Don't, don't dwell on it. Um, acknowledge the difference between I don't know and science doesn't know. 
There's a lot we don't know about transgendered individuals. There's a lot that we don't know about the population. There's a lot that we don't know about you know, different risks. There's a lot we don't know. Um, and it's okay. Um, hopefully, um, you know, we, we will continue to gain more and more knowledge. Hopefully we will be able to fund more studies so that we do have a more thorough understanding of these individuals. But it's okay to say, you know, we don't know. Science doesn't know the answer to that question. And hopefully we'll, we'll find an answer. Um, that is different though from, I don't know, let me go look it up. Um, and, and I, I would hope that, um, that you would, uh, if, you, if you personally don't know, go and find the resources um, and, and bring, that, bring that back so that you can answer the questions um, for, for those individuals um, that they ask. But it's really important um, to acknowledge that um, and to acknowledge that, that difference as well. Um, so in discussing gender and sexual orientation, um, in general, you know, my, my goal is usually just to avoid using gendered language at all. Um, but when I do assess gendered identity, um, sorry, and, and the, the avoiding using gendered language again, I, you know, so when I'm, when I take a, um, when I take a, a sexual history or, or when I take a, a social history, um, from one of my patients, you know, I, I ask, I don't ask like, oh, who is your, you know, are, are you married? Who's your husband? You know, I, I would ask, you know, are you in a relationship? Are you married? Um, or, uh, and, and if they say yes, you know, I'm, I'm married. Oh, um, tell me about your spouse rather than you're making the assumption that you have a husband or you have a wife. Um, don't make the assumption that a transgender woman is attracted to men. There are transgendered women who are attracted to women and identify as lesbians. Um, there are transgendered men who you know, are attracted to, to other men and identify as gay. Um, so you know, the whole gamut, that's why those two things, gender and sexual orientation are in fact separate. Um, when I assess gender identity, you know, the, the questions I like to ask are, what do you consider your gender to be? Or how do you feel about your gender? What pronouns do you use? These are nice and, and non-gendered um, ways of asking these questions. Um, assessing uh, sexual orientation, again, not the major focus of this talk, but important to mention. Um, do you find that you're attracted to people of specific genders? What is the gender of your partners? What is the gender of the people you like to have sex with? Um, questions such as that that are that are not uh, don't imply a, a gender um, or or otherwise non-gendered. When you're asking about barriers, whether it's to care or other resources, um, you know these can also be asked in a non-gendered way. Have you experienced discrimination because of your gender? Have you had difficulty finding or keeping a job because of your gender? Have you experienced problems accessing healthcare because of your gender? Have you ever been subjected to violence because of your gender? Or do you ever skip meals to be able to pay for gender affirming care or medications? Um, and that last one, I, I would urge you to ask. Um, I, I find um, that uh, many, many transgendered individuals will give up many, many, many things um, to, to be able to, um, to, to take, um, to either get or to take the medications that they need for their gender affirming care. Um, I have patients who, um, who will not take medications uh, to control their HIV because they're, they're more concerned about their gender appearance and they're willing to accept the risk of uncontrolled HIV over the risk of not appearing the way that they feel inside. Um, that also sometimes extends to concerns about interactions of those medications, but that is an entirely uh, different conversation um, that uh, we don't necessarily need to have today. 
Um, when you approach these patients, it's really important to, um, to, to use cultural humility, which is defined as having an interpersonal stance that is other-centered rather than self-focused. It's characterized by respect uh, and then by a lack of superiority uh, toward an individual's cultural background and their experience. Um, so focus on the self-humility. That is the best way, I think, to take care of these patients. Um, remember that it's not about achieving a state of knowledge or awareness, although hopefully you will gain some knowledge and awareness. Um, it's really based upon the idea that the patient or the client is the authority on their lived experience. Um, and so if you are open and um, allow them to communicate that experience to you, um, you, you will uh, do a good job in, in caring for those individuals. So in conclusion, uh, as we're actually, I think a little bit over time, um, I just wanted to provide you with some resources uh, to, to go forward with. Um, I think probably one of the best resources that's out there is WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgendered Health. Um, they provide clinical and ethical guidance. They produce standards of care. Um, this is actually where we usually go um, when we're looking to um, to get services or medications or surgeries covered is to use this as a um, as the best set of guidelines, um, and we can use this as an argument for for obtaining the care that these individuals need. Um, it also provides guidelines for primary care, for mental health services, for gynecologic and urologic care, uh, also voice and communication therapies. It's really a comprehensive resource um, and is is very helpful in caring for these patients. Um, there is, um, I will say, there is um, it is. I think predominantly a medical society, so you know, do keep that in mind. Um, but it is sort of the premier society for transgendered health in the world, not just the United States. Um, other other helpful uh, societies, so the Endocrine Society of America, um, they provide advocacy and they provide a lot of treatment in terms, or sorry, a lot of guidance in terms of medical treatments. Uh, and then the National LGBTQ Task Force also provides a lot of advocacy um, and other resources for these individuals. Um, we are fortunate in California to have a number of gender health centers. Um, UCLA, I have to plug, um, we have our own uh, gender health program that is very comprehensive and includes providers from multiple different disciplines, everything from individuals like myself in primary care to urology to gynecology to plastic surgery to, um, to transgender literate and, and um, and competent uh, mental health providers, both social workers as well as um, a psychiatrist, also case management. Um, it really is, uh, I think, an incredible program. Um, for um, I, I, it's not in LA, but I have to mention it. UCSF also has the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health. This is one of the premier transgender health institutions throughout the entire United States, um, and is a wonderful um, a wonderful resource. Um, for, for, um, for care of these patients. Um, here in LA, Cedars-Sinai also has a comprehensive gender, uh, transgender surgery and health center. Um, and uh, they don't provide, I think, surgical resources, but the LA LGBT Center um, does provide trans healthcare um, and resources. So that is another, um, another great center within the community, um, which may not require insurance as some of these others do. Um, and then finally, um, crisis hotlines. I'm sure you're all familiar with the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, but there is a trans lifeline, and that is for all transgendered individuals um, can, can use that. The Trevor Lifeline um, is part of the Trevor Project, which specifically is for, um, for adolescent um, LGBT um, individuals, um, but they provide transgendered um, services as well through the lifeline. In terms of, of 
free resources. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not fully aware of everything that's available in the community, uh, unfortunately. Um, generally speaking, um, the LAG, uh, LA LGBT Center is probably the first place that I would send anyone who, um, who is uninsured or who has, um, has issues um, uh, with, um, with resources. Um, the, unfortunately, there just aren't a lot of, of transgender-specific resources. Um, you know, for for those who are also HIV positive, there is a PLA um, who who uh, can provide additional resources that way. Um, those patients tend to have coverage because because of their HIV diagnosis, um, even if it's through something such as ADAP. Um, but the LH LGBT center is probably the first place that I would send someone who didn't have um, have insurance or financial resources. In schools, students are told they should go into whichever restroom they feel more comfortable with. I, I would think that that would bring out more problems. The changing rooms are another story. What if you're changing in the male changing room, but you want to use the girls' bathroom? What do you do? Is there an easy answer? Um, thank you for that question, Eve. Um, no, there isn't an easy answer. Um, and um, you know, the idea that um, that you can just go to whichever restroom that you feel more comfortable with. Um, you know, it sounds good on the face, but it is not, um, it's not really that straightforward because you also have to consider the, the comfort of all the other people in that room as well. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean that, um, that transgendered individuals should spend their time trying to make other people feel, um, feel better. Um, but the negative impacts, if you, you know, if, if you were to go into a room um, and everyone else feels uncomfortable, obviously that will, will make you feel uncomfortable as well. Um, I don't think that there is an easy answer. Um, you know, one thing that I would, I would suggest, or I would hope that would be considered is, um, you know, if there is a, if there is any access to individual uh, restrooms, um, you know, I, I have had, um, uh, patients who um, who were able to use like an individual restroom, maybe that was otherwise reserved for faculty, um, you know, with schools may be willing to allow access uh, to, to students for that. Um, it really, each institution handles that in a different way, unfortunately, um, it, but there's no, there's no good answer. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, it changes as to what point in a person's transition they are. Um, you know, someone who hasn't started their transition may still feel better in themselves, feel better in, you know, a restroom of the opposite gender. But if they present as the opposite gender, they may not be welcome in that space, um, which obviously could cause a lot of dysphoria. Um, thank you, Jen Jenny. Yes, I agree. You do need to be gen uh, specific in, in what exactly you are asking about. Um, I'm not, you should be, in general, you should be very specific about what you're asking, whether it's gender identity, sexual orientation, gender expression, any of those things. Is there any research on those who choose to detransition? Um, there isn't a lot of, um, there isn't a lot of research on people who, um, who, who choose to reverse their transition. Um, the hope is, is that we're doing a good job up front, um, to make sure that people really are, you know, we don't just start hormone therapy because someone walks in the office and says, Hey, you know, I, I really, I think I'm, I'm a woman and, or, Hey, I think I'm a man, even though that was not my sex assigned at birth. Um, it's not quite that in, um, not quite that easy. You know, there there is a process. You know, number of conversations um, over time. If there's you know any concerns, I will often 
um, have those patients um, evaluated by a mental health professional um, who's trained in that sort of um, in that area, uh, whether it's a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker, you know, it needs to be someone who's familiar with these types of patients. Um, and then the other part of it is to really, um, in the beginning, understand exactly what a person's goals are. Um, and usually through that conversation, um, we are able to, um, to make sure that, you know, what we're doing really is the most appropriate thing for that, that person. That said, sometimes people, you know, take two steps forward and then they realize that they're traveling in the wrong direction. Um, you know, as we sort of mentioned before, generally speaking, if we, we cease the hormonal therapy, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of the work will go the opposite direction. We'll go back to sort of where it was before, um, other other things may not, such as you know breast development or voice changes, um, and we can refer to either surgery or to um, speech therapy, you know different um, different services to be able to help people to get back to, um, to I guess we would say their baseline. Um, but um, yeah, there's there's not really any prospective research on that. It you know it. There's, the population of people who are transitioning is, is so small um, to even get funding to, to do research there um, is difficult. And then to, to do further research um, on, on the even smaller number of people who choose to reverse their transition, um, it, it's just not there at this point in time. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Eve. Um, I, I wish we had more individual restrooms as well. Um, you know, it, these are... Unfortunately, some of these things are sort of insurmountable barriers um, where we are, you know, we have to work with the resources that are on the ground. And um, sometimes we have to ask people to make uncomfortable choices, um, you know, based on, on that. You know, the fact that, that you know, schools are, are allowing, uh, allowing people to, to choose um, which, which restroom to use, I think is already a huge step. I mean, we've seen in, in the not too distant past, you know, entire sections of the country where people are being forced to not um, have that choice. Um, so the, the fact that at least at least they have it is is a step. Um, but we're still, I think as a society, we're still trying to understand uh, the best way to move forward with this. There's, I just had one last slide. Um, and it, you know it's it's what do trans individuals want you to know? So um, if you know if if I had a, a trans patient here, what would they want me to tell you? Um, and I think the most important points are this, um, and some of these are actually from a survey that we took at our own gender health center. Um, and what they want you to know is that they're more than just trans. They have the same range of wants and needs as everyone else. Um, you know, they're people. They're not, they're not transgendered people, they're people. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. Um, they spend time every day educating everyone they come in contact with about being trans. It's exhausting. Um, I, I don't understand that myself because I don't have to educate people on who I am every day. Um, I can't imagine how exhausting it must be, but keep that in mind. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I would say is it's important to understand for these individuals what their identity is and how they see themselves and their expression and all of that. Um, and it is important to ask questions to make sure that you are treating them respectfully and using the terminology and the language that they like. Um, but make sure that you aren't asking some questions just to ask questions because you have curiosity. Make sure that you're asking questions because you need to know the answers. Um, 
that, that particularly comes in, you know, in, into play when it, we start getting into talking about anatomy and that sort of thing. Those can be very invasive questions. Um, so if you don't need to know, you know, consider why you're asking the question. Um, and then lastly, it's more important to ask and use the pronouns or identifiers that they use than to understand the full scope of their gender identity and expression. So the point is, is again, I think going back to reflecting, um, you know, what what language that they use and um, and and the, you know following through with what they've asked of you, um, you know, the pronouns, the identifiers, the the preferred name, all of those things. Um, rather than trying to, to dissect every part of their identity, um, particularly because that identity and expression may change over time, um, and that's their self-exploration. Um, and if they choose to include you um, in, in more depth in that process, that's wonderful, um, but um, it isn't necessarily required. Um, so I, I, I want to say um, thank you to everyone and uh, for attending. I hope that this was uh, enjoyable and informative. Um, and I'm going to stay here on the line uh, for a bit longer if anyone has any other questions. Um, how often should someone getting hormone treatments see their doctor? And that's an excellent question. Um, it really depends on what part of their transition they're in um, and whether or not we're changing um, anything about their treatments. Uh, so in the beginning, I usually see my, my patients um, relatively frequently. Um, so if this is someone who is coming for me or coming to me for the first time, who's not yet on therapy and is you know ready to start, um, or or even someone who who's you know just considering starting, I, I'm probably going to see them once once a month in the beginning. Um, a, to, to get to know each other, to fully understand what their goals are and how I can help them to realize their goals. Um, and then once they actually start on medication, um, there's a considerable amount of monitoring, particularly in the beginning as we get them on a stable regimen. Um, so oftentimes that's gonna be, you know, once a month in the beginning. Um, after, you know, after three to six months, that usually gets spaced out. Um, so even then, um, you know, I, I, would, I would go from one month to three, eventually to six, um, and then those patients who are very, very stable um, on a good regimen um, and thing is, it remains consistent, um, I'm probably going to see them at least once every six months, um, occasionally once a year, but generally speaking, at, at least once every six months. Um, so it really depends on what part of their transition they're in. And then also, you know, even someone who I'm seeing once every six months, occasionally things change. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe they come in and this time their medication levels are off or you know, hormone levels are off. I may need to see them more frequently for a period of time um, until they're stabilized again. It really just depends on, um, on how much is changing and at what sort of rate. Um, so I assume you educate them on the risks of taking too much at once. Yes, um, yes, we, we do um, certainly educate on all the risks and benefits um, of medications or surgeries or anything else. Um, definitely educate them not to um, take too much of their medication. Um, unfortunately, as I, as I mentioned before, some people still do so. Um, you know, there's a, it, it's a difficult psychology, um, you know, it, it's the same um, in many ways, I think, is, you know, people who go to the gym, um, and, you know, want to be uh, and look a certain way. Um, it's really hard to, you know, you know on some level that no matter how many times a day you go to the gym, it's still going to take time to lose weight, um, but you still want to lose weight overnight. 
Um, and that's, I think, the same experience in a lot of ways that, that these individuals go through is, is they see themselves as a certain way on the inside and they want the outside to reflect that. Um, and they, they think or they you know, understand that if they, um, if they take more medication, that that's going to speed things up. Um, and that isn't necessarily the case and it does come with, with real risks. Um, so we certainly educate them on it. Um, it unfortunately, sometimes they, they still, um, they, they don't necessarily go with, with what we know to be the right, um, the right treatment course, um, but we, we do the best that we can. Um, thank you, Jenny. Uh, do you recommend counseling or therapy during the process? Um, it depends. Um, it depends on the individual. Um, you know, I have uh, some patients who have a lot of mental health issues, um, either um, related to their transgender status um, or, or not. Um, and some it, it's, it's purely organic disease. Um, for those individuals who need it, absolutely, I think counseling and therapy are, um, are helpful. Um, for some individuals, uh, particularly those who have been um, been on uh, been on therapy or or um, you know have have um, are fully um, concordant sort of with their gender identity expression they don't have um, as many mental health issues so um, it, it really depends um, but I have a very low threshold um, if I have any uh, suspicion of, of mental health issues certainly to, to refer um, and I think early in the process it's helpful to get um, to get um, these, these people counseling or therapy um, because um, there may especially in the beginning be a lot of sort of unrecognized um, issues um, and, and it helps to sort of bring those to the forefront and protects against making um, treatment decisions that may in the end uh, not be what the, the person truly, truly wants um, until, you know, we fully unmask some of those underlying problems. Um, and Eve asks, um, I had a colleague who adopted twin sons who developed such terrible allergies in middle and high school that they had to be homeschooled. Later, they went to a UC together and both went through gender reassignment treatment, including surgery together. Is the allergy thing common? Um, to my knowledge, there's no... Um, there's no association between allergies and um, and uh, either gender dysphoria or or um, or, or transgendered um, uh, status. Um, yes, I, I, I'm not I'm not sure if if the question is is about the relationship between allergies and trans and being transgendered. Um, if that's the question, there's no um, there's no correlation that I'm aware of. Um, in terms of people having terrible allergies, um, no, I don't think that overall um, having certainly allergies that, that require people to be homeschooled is common. Um, some degree of, of allergies is relatively common in the population, particularly seasonal allergies, um, but there are many, many, you know, different uh, levels of, um, or variability in that. Um, uh, I'm not sure about the pediatric literature. I'm, I only do adult uh, medicine, um, so um, so in general, you know, there 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 are allergies. Um, I don't see a correlation with with transgender status. Um, but if there's questions about it, I would suggest that that those individuals be seen by an allergist who specializes in that type of treatment, um, who can help us to identify those allergies so that that they could avoid triggers. Um, which would make things significantly worse, and then also can be on appropriate levels of, of anti-allergy medications um, to make sure that it's well controlled um, and that those individuals can live a normal life.
And I, I hope everyone had a had a useful and um, and helpful um, session. If there's other questions, um, you know, I'm happy to answer them. Um, I'm sure they can be forwarded to to me through the, the PMHP team. 